Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Romans, chapter 11. We've been in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves this morning in the middle of chapter 11, beginning with verse 16 through verse 24. This chapter is an interesting chapter amongst an interesting section, chapters 9 through 11. It has one central theme as Paul talks about the uh, melding in of the Gentiles along with the Jews. And he says it over and over again throughout the 36 verses of this chapter. And whenever you study the Romans 11, you don't want to miss the forest for the trees, neither do you want to miss the trees for the forest, because there are some very beautiful sub-themes that we find throughout this chapter as Paul gives instruction to the Gentile believers in Rome about what it means to be a child of God and what it means to follow uh, Jesus Christ. But what we look at this morning is Paul's words uh, to the Gentiles in the form of an allegory, uh, really a couple of allegories, actually. Paul's going to uh, talk to the Gentiles mainly about their attitude toward the Jews and uh, that they would approach life and approach being a Christian or the Christian life as those who are humble, who fear God, and uh, who love their brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we'll be looking at some very practical uh, instructions that Paul gives uh, to the Gentiles, and then a final word of hope about the Jews. And that's what we'll look at this morning. So before we begin our study together, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we earnestly would see Jesus and him only. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work in many ways through your word in the hearts of pastor and people alike. And so, Lord, come now and bless us by your Spirit, and we'll give you all the praise and the glory for what you will do in our lives as a result of hearing and obeying the Word of God. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Jews throughout history made a lot of enemies, as you know. Instead of being alike to the nations, they became arrogant and conceited. They lost a healthy sense of the fear of God, and they presumed upon God's kindness in the midst of their disobedience. This is what led to an arrogant attitude, a conceited attitude. And we see that in living color uh, in the book of Jonah. Jonah represents the Jewish hatred of Gentiles, the resistance the attitude that they don't deserve to be converted. They don't deserve to be a part of the religion of Israel. Why would God concern himself with them? Well, in summary, the reputation of God's chosen people led them to believe they were superior to everyone else on the face of the planet, and that God had no interest in anyone else except for them. E.M. Smallwood said of the Jews in Paul's day, the Jew was a figure of amusement, contempt, 
or hatred to the Gentiles among whom he lived. And that's absolutely true. As a result, they suffered under God's judgment and discipline at the hands of their foreign enemies, like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. And so we know the Jews have faced difficulty and hardship and heartache for hundreds of years. If we fast forward past that time of antiquity, Paul finds that Gentile believers in Rome, oddly enough, have uh, adopted the same attitudes, the same disposition that the Israelites had had for centuries and had been judged for. There was a spirit of anti-Semitism all over the Roman Empire, and Paul discovered this attitude amongst the believers in Rome. It's amazing how cultural trends and attitudes and beliefs have a way of seeping into the church. But that's exactly what happened. When we fast forward 2,000 years and you still find the same sense of pride and arrogance and conceit among believers in Christ Jesus. See, this passage teaches not only about, and again, the Jews uh, coming together with the Gentiles, the fact that the Gentiles will be grafted in uh, to this new humanity, but this passage also teaches us something about our relationship with one another. Because if God can knock down the barrier between Jew and Gentile and create one new humanity, then he ought to be able to knock down any and every other barrier that we may have with our fellow Christians. Isn't that right? All barriers need to go away. And that's how we demonstrate to the world that love is the emblem that demonstrates our belonging to Jesus. In this passage, Paul gives some much-needed correction and instruction to believers concerning our attitude and disposition toward one another. And if it was needed in Paul's day, things haven't really changed as needed in our day. So let's look for a few moments at Paul's unfolding of this teaching right in the middle of chapter 11. First of all, I want you to notice a guiding principle. And he does this by way of an allegory. Look at verse 16, a guiding principle. If the first piece of the dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Paul begins with this allegory uh, from the kitchen and the forest. It's kind of a dual allegory. Both figures teach the same lesson, but from different vantage points. And the lesson is this. Jew and Gentiles are bound together, and they are equal before God in Christ Jesus. Now, you'll notice the first of the allegory, the first part of it, looks backward. A lump of dough, Paul is saying, is just as holy as a piece of dough from it. And then he looks forward. He says, a holy root leads to holy branches. And Paul is seeking to communicate the mutual and the binding relationship between Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. They are inseparable. Both parties must realize that they have an intimate connection with each other. It is in Christ Jesus that Jews and Gentiles can come together to form this new humanity, a third race, if you will, that will cause the world to marvel over such an amazing mystery. It's part of the mystery of the gospel, that God could knock down every barrier. And the most severe barrier there was was between Jew and Gentile. Now, unfortunately, living out this guiding principle of equality and mutual connection is apparently not what was happening 
in the Roman church. And Paul must offer some instruction and bring it to fruition. Look at uh, the second item I'd like to show you this morning. First of all, the guiding principle. The Jew and Gentile come together in Christ Jesus. There is equality. God doesn't look at one over the other. But then secondly, a call for humility. Verse 17, Paul reminds the Gentile believers of their origin in Christ Jesus. He says that some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant against the branches. Apparently this arrogance was known in the church. Some Gentile believers began to look at themselves as superior to the Jews. And this certainly led to an arrogant attitude. Arrogance is an overestimation of rank and self-importance. You can see it in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. You know when Joseph goes out and he says to his brothers, let me tell you what's going to happen here. God is going to make me ruler over you. How do you like that good news, you know? How do you like me now, so to speak? Whenever we have an overestimation and we communicate that of self-importance, we lose track of reality and truth. And apparently some Gentile believers were doing that. So what is Paul's remedy for this arrogance? He reminds them in the latter part of verse 18. He reminds the Gentile believers of their origin. See, the fundamental problem is they lost sight of a sovereign God who saved them. And the fact that he brought salvation to them through the Jews. There's something arresting about Paul's choice of wording here. Because he's talking about the root of anti-Semitism. It's an arrogant attitude toward Jews as if God was not sovereignly in charge of the events of human history. You think about that throughout the centuries. People have hated Jews. Even the time of the Holocaust was the zenith of that. Looking at them as... Uh, not connected to the God, the true and living God who is, but apart from that. And this arrogance develops, and it shows unbelief. It shows unbelief in the God who is. It shows unbelief in the Bible. That God is not sovereignly in charge of the events of human history. And so, Paul basically is dealing about the root of anti-Semitism, and he does it in a very colorful way. He says, you need to remember that it is the root who supports you, not you supporting the root. And this root of anti-Semitism wouldn't be here if you would look back to your origin. Look back to your roots. As Isaiah 51 verse 1 says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the glory from which you were in other words, get your eyes off yourself and look back to the greatness of your God and his lengthy record of his gracious dealings with you. It's a call to humility. Humility is not thinking of yourself or thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. And we live in a very ugly world right now where people are just totally consumed with self. Paul says this ought not to be the case in the church. There should be a sense of humility with one another. And we need to practice that, ladies and gentlemen. I notice in churches after 30 years of ministry, you, 
You could be in churches where there's division economically. Some people make a lot of money. Some people have very little money. And it can condition the relationships. Or education level. Or the fact that you're from the north or from the south. It's amazing the different things that can cause division. The different things that can make one Christian look superior or feel superior over another Christian. And Paul says, take care. If Jew and Gentile come together as one in Christ Jesus, then who are we to allow any kind of barriers to exist between us? We have a common bond in Jesus Christ, whether we're married, divorced, whether we're male or female, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're educated or uneducated. And we need to take care that we don't look down with arrogance toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to practice humility. There's a story about Alexander White, who was a very famous Scottish pastor uh, in the old world, and uh, he uh, led young men to become uh, new ministers, and he had one prodigy, a young man who was uh, quickly rising in the ranks and was going to be a great, great Scottish preacher. And this young man thought highly of himself. And uh, one day when it was billed that he was going to be preaching at White's church, he uh, approached the pulpit with full confidence as he mounted up his big, tall pulpit that they have in Scotland. And he went up the stairs with every confidence in the world, and he was looking forward to developing and, and delivering this sermon, and all of a sudden he forgot everything. He forgot his notes. He forgot all that he was going to say. And so he went up so proud and so cocky, but then he slivered down that big pulpit and he went into the study and he said to Dr. White, Sir, what went wrong? And Dr. White said, Laddie, if you'd gone up the way you come down, you'd have had a better chance of coming down the way you get up. <laughs> if you'd gone up with humility, you'd had a better chance of coming down with honor. We have a tendency to get it all backwards all the time. When we approach one another, if we approach one another with humility and seek to love each other and care for each other, notice each other, serve each other, that brings about a beautiful picture in the body of Christ. Well, there's a call to humility. Notice, secondly and quickly, a call to fear. Look at verses 19 through 21. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off. Paul takes things a step further in his correction and instruction. In verse 19, Paul basically parrots the attitude of some of the Gentile believers. Now, practically, it looks like this. The Jews, they would say something like this. The Jews really messed up, so God removed a bunch of them to make room for us Gentiles. It's an attitude of superiority that stems from self-righteousness. It says, you Jews, you had your chance, but you muffed it. And so we Gentiles will show you how it's done. That's the attitude that Paul is quoting. But you'll notice in verse 20a, the first part, he gives, as Paul Harvey always did, the rest of the story. He says, quite right, they were broken off with their unbelief, but it doesn't stop there. You stand by your faith. Paul says, this is true, what you just said, but that's only a part of it. And Paul gives the rest of the story. Some branches were broken off, and you were grafted in. 
But this did not happen because God likes you better or because you're more righteous. The breaking off of some Jews is a result of unbelief. And the grafting in of Gentiles is a result of your faith. And you see, faith, ladies and gentlemen, is a gift from God. It comes to us as a result of His kindness and grace. So Paul says, the only difference between you and the Jews who were cut off is your faith. In other words, your acceptance and standing before God is not the result of anything in you inherently or anything you do or have done in the past. It is faith alone in Christ that makes you or makes one a child of God. You were grafted into the vine when you exercise faith in Jesus Christ. You know, today is, among other things, Reformation Sunday. And the Reformation reality that rang through the centuries is justified by faith alone. And what Paul is saying is, we need to keep this at the forefront of our minds at all times. Justification by faith isn't something, it's just a doctrine that we celebrate once a year at the end of October. It is a living reality that we practice every day. Yes, we're justified by faith when we come to faith in Christ. But a saving faith is a working faith and a living faith. So we must keep this Reformation reality in the forefront of our minds at all times. Not on the shelf. That's simply a doctrine we need to believe. You began the Christian life by faith. And you will finish it by faith. Or you will find yourself returning to slavery to the flesh, which you were delivered from when you believed. You see how important faith is? That's why Paul, one of the reasons why Paul wrote Galatians. The Galatians started out right. They are exercising faith in Christ. They didn't have a high view of themselves. They kept their eyes on Jesus. But they didn't just come to faith in Christ. They continued to live by faith in Christ. What does that mean? It means obeying God's Word, even when it's difficult. It means believing that God is going to give me the grace to do what He calls me to do. And even when there's something hard in front of me, I believe God's Word. And I'm willing to act on faith. I believe that He is in my life. I believe that He is taking care of things. I believe He will pave a way for me to do what He wants me to do. Justification by faith must not be treated as an isolated theological reality of the new birth alone. It is a living, vibrant truth. And it must be remembered and rehearsed every day of our new life in Christ. See, Paul is pulling the rug right out from underneath these individuals. And that's true so often as Christians. We have a half-truth. And the half-truth can lead to a lot of error whenever we don't have the full picture. And Paul is saying, look, you're not any better than the Jews, you Gentiles. The only thing that separates you is your belief. Because they are being distinguished by their unbelief. And he goes on in verse 20b to say, do not be conceited, but fear. You know, conceited is an excessive, an excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability or importance. It's a twin sister of uh, arrogance. Paul says there's no room for conceit. In fact, any conceit should give way to a healthy fear of God. That's why he says fear. 
Verse 21, he gives the reason for this advice. For God, if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Now, Paul is not saying that an authentic believer can lose his or her salvation. He is saying that the faith of some professing believers might be spurious rather than genuine. Why do the scriptures call us to a healthy fear of God and self-examination? Well, to fear God is to acknowledge and respect his presence, his word as you live your life. You see, the fear of God is not, I profess faith in Christ and I'm going to live the rest of my life as if God is going to step on me like a, a bug whenever I get it wrong. No, that is not the fear of God. The fear of God is acknowledging His presence. It is acknowledging the truth of His Word. It is acknowledging that this is my life. This is the substance of my life. I believe He's there. I believe His Word, and I'm going to obey it. That's what it means to fear God. It means to respect His presence and His Word as your very life. Peter talked about it in 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 19. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges to each man's work, conduct yourselves in reverent fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb unblemished and spotless. The Bible calls us to a healthy fear of God, not because God may at some point turn and reject us. That's not the point. The Bible calls us to a fear of God so that we take our faith seriously and persevere so we don't fall away from the faith and reject Him. See, the problem is not God saying, I'm going to turn on you, you disappointed me, and I'm going to put you off. No. He set aside the Jews because of their unbelief. And what He is saying here is that we need to fear God and take Him seriously and not toy with us. Not play games with his truth. Not presume on his kindness. But take it seriously as we walk with him. Let me challenge you to that this day. There's no place for conceit, and there's all the room in the world for a biblical, godly fear. But it's not that God would reject you. The real fear is that you would walk away from him. Well, Paul talks about this fear of God, and then notice, uh, it goes right into verse 22, a call to perseverance. A call to perseverance. First of all, in verse 22a, Paul calls the Gentile believers to consider the character of God. Behold, the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell away, severity, but to you, God's kindness. He is both kind and severe, and one doesn't cancel out the other. The character of our God is multifaceted. The Bible presents both the love of God and the wrath of God. And we must not focus on the one apart from the other. And how many pulpits on this Lord's Day around the world acknowledge the love of God, but not the wrath and the fury of God? And yet both are taught in Scripture. Paul is demonstrating that it is not arbitrary or capricious that God is not this way in the demonstration of his kindness and severity. Look at the verse carefully. God's sovereignty, that is his judgment, is shown to those who fell away. Unbelieving Jews in this case. But his kindness is demonstrated whenever you Gentiles believe in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? God's kindness. And he ends verse 22 with a call 
to persevere. He ends it with a warning. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. This is Paul's warning. It's a call to perseverance. Gentile believers have tasted God's kindness, but their status is vulnerable. Why is that? It is possible to taste the things of salvation and still not be genuinely regenerated. Paul has already alluded to this back in verse 21. Now again, hear me very, very carefully. The Bible doesn't teach that a genuine believer with genuine salvation can ever lose that salvation. What it does teach is the perseverance of the saints. And that is, a man or a woman who genuinely knows Christ is going to persevere to the end. And the opposite of that is what we saw in the Gospel reading this morning, the parable of the sower and the seed. You can have all the interaction with the Gospel, and yet your heart may demonstrate that it's not good soil. In due time, that soil may be rocky. It may be that it didn't have any soil at all. It ended up on the side of the road. Or it may be that your heart has thorns, as we read. You're so consumed. You hear the gospel, and you're all for the gospel. This is a good thing. But I am so consumed with this life and this world, this city of man, and not the city of God. I don't see it. I don't see the invisible in my life daily. Therefore, I don't have time for these things. Or maybe you embrace the faith and you start walking with Christ, but after a while you get tired. After a while you find, I'm not reading my Bible as much anymore. I don't want to go to church that much anymore. You know, those are signs of genuine salvation when you want to hear the Word. You want to be amongst God's people. And beloved, we need to take care that we don't start giving a false assurance when somebody who comes to us, who doesn't read the Bible, doesn't pray, doesn't actively follow Christ, we have no business giving them any assurance that they know the Lord Jesus. Let the Spirit of God do that. Challenge them. Say, what is the fruit of your life? This is a matter of life and death. Why is it that you lay at home and don't get up and go to worship the living God? Why is it you don't read your Bible? And pray. Why is it that opportunities to study God's Word are just optional to you? You could care less. It may be that the genuine article of saving faith is not present. And we owe it out of love to challenge folks to examine their life. That's what Paul said. Examine yourself in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourself to make sure that you're in the faith. Peter said it in 2 Peter chapter 1. Make your calling and election sure. Because if you're not pursuing Christ, you're going to be pursuing something or someone else. And this saving faith needs to be paramount in our lives. But notice he puts it in such a beautiful way. He calls it the kindness of God. You know, Paul said in Titus 3, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Let me challenge you with that this morning. Are you continuing? Have you tasted the kindness of God? And if so, are you continuing 
in it. And let me encourage you, if you fall, if you fall and constantly fall and you're trying to get back up, stay in the race. Stay in the race. The Lord is incredibly patient. And when we don't presume upon Him, but we are genuinely struggling in our lives to overcome sin and to do the right thing, the Lord God Almighty is incredibly patient. Paul said so himself, that God had saved him as an example of His infinite patience. Stay in the race. Don't presume on God's kindness. The kindness of God leads to repentance. God's kindness should lead to gratitude in the heart of a life of a believer and not indifference. Finally and quickly, I must close. He gives a promise of hope. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, And they also, meaning the Jews who don't believe, if they continue in their unbelief, if they don't continue in their unbelief, God can graft them in again. Paul makes it clear that God's kindness and mercy remain available to unbelieving Jews. If God can graft or graft a wild olive shoot, the Gentiles, then he can certainly regraft or graft in again a natural shoot, an unbelieving Jew. And it's just like the Lord to offer a final word of hope for all those who do not believe in the midst of this tough language of perseverance. The Bible calls this hope of Christ the anchor of the soul. Do you have that anchor today? Have you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you see fruit in your life of growing and changing, becoming more like Him? That's what the body of Christ is all about. May God bless us as we aim towards this goal and as we hear the words of Paul carefully and as we attempt to love each other in this branch of the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray this morning that our ears will be closed to the lies of the world. And Lord, even the lying tongues that so often have been creeping into the church, may we hear your word and your truth loud and clear. And Lord, I pray that there's one or more here this morning that perhaps they professed at one time, maybe they're falling away. But Lord, they would hear a word of hope, that they would return to your kindness in Christ Jesus they would understand your love for them and that they would repent and seek your face, become a part of your body, the church. Lord, make it so. Stir us all to love and good deeds as we seek to walk together as the visible body of Christ known as Christ Central. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.